morning, good afternoon, or good evening, listeners, and welcome to the latest installment of MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. I'm Brian Shaw, corporate partner in MBM's London office, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Caroline Urban. Hi, Caroline. Good morning. Hello, everyone. Caroline, apart from the obvious, i.e. that we'll be chatting all things M&A today, what else can our listeners expect? So for those who are new to the show, in each episode, we catch up with clients or advisors in the M&A space. We keep it light, fresh, informative, and of course, entertaining. So uh, let's move on. First things first, snacks. And today I'm munching, as it is breakfast time, on Vollkorn board, good traditional German bread with some butter and honey. What about you, Brian? Hmm, Falcon board. I haven't heard of that. Well, I'll, I'll be traditioning on, an, on a traditional Aussie breakfast. Got my Vegemite toast in one hand and sipping my cafe latte. Yes, cafe lattes have made their way to Australia in the other hand. Mm, yes, very typical Australian. <laughs> um, anyway, enough about the stacks. Why don't you tell us about our special guest today? Today, it is with much pleasure that we are joined by Sam Smolkin, a former M&A lawyer from a large US firm, who decided around two or three years ago to give that all up and establish his own legal tech startup called Office and Dragons. Now, I met Sam um, at the right at the beginning of his journey, just as he was uh, leaving Caney and, and starting up Office and Dragons, when we met through the Barclays Eagle Labs uh, Law Tech Accelerator. And at that time, it was a one-man band. It was Sam and nobody else. Well, things certainly have blossomed since then, um, where he now has a bunch of employees and he's looking to take that next step with a significant raise on the horizon. Sam, thank you for your time. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thanks so much, Brian. Pleasure to be here. Sam, before we begin, as you've heard, we're all snacking on something. Um, what are you snacking on today? <laughs> well, my fiance's kept the house well equipped with lots of sweets, so I'm having uh, some chocolates and uh, drinking my coffee. Very good. Very good. Or is it, you said sweets. I'm surprised Sweet. you didn't say candy. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm being turned. I've been here for uh, about five and a half years in the UK. So, well, so Sam, as we begin, can, just for a bit of context, do you mind give us a bit, bit of background? Tell us about the Sam Smolkin story. Where did it all begin and how did you end up where you are today? Sure. So I'll uh, try to keep it abridged, but if my accent doesn't give it away, I'm from America. I did my undergraduate degree and my JD in law both in the US before I took a job with Kirkland and Ellis in London, working on private equity M&A transactions. So working on big deals for big private equity sponsors, cross-border transactions and all that kind of stuff. You know, behind the headlines, there's a lot that's not so glamorous. During my time at KNE, I started thinking about different ways we could work that could try to alleviate some of that. In my undergraduate degree, I also studied engineering. So I had some background in coding from back then, and I'd kept it up before coming up with what eventually became Office and Dragons. And as you say, leaving K&E a little less than two years ago to launch Office and Dragons full-time. Can you tell us about some of your more interesting deals at K&E or even some of the, not to criticize, but general sort of deal inefficiencies that you wanted to tackle with what you're doing now. There's this phrase I used to hear all the time at K&E, which was worst deal ever. And I heard that for the first time when I finished my first big deal, you know, that's like rough, late nights, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my colleagues was like, okay, I think this is the worst deal our office has ever seen. You got really unlucky. That was your first one. And I was like, okay, well, you know, at least it only goes up from here. 
<laughs> and the next deal, I was pulling all-nighters, going hundreds of pages deep and dozens of contracts, making last-minute changes and that kind of rush of stress before closings, clients chasing you, partners chasing you, that sort of thing. And every time, you know, the same thing, you know, someone would say, no, this was the worst deal ever. <laughs> That's really where I started to notice a pattern. The pattern is that deals were getting worse. It's because, in my view, the actual deals themselves that our clients are doing M&A transactions or financings, IPOs, they're always getting faster, more complex, more competitive. Yet we lawyers were scrambling to keep up, essentially drafting documents the same way that we have been for centuries. You know, any, anything that big that you're trying to manage, it creates a lot of, first of all, confusion from everyone involved. There's a lot of advisors and just staying on the same page. When I, you know, when I talk to transaction counsel or deal team members at clients I used to work for now, they tell me their biggest struggle is that they always feel a day or two behind their advisors, despite all the memos and alignment calls. And on the advisor side as well, I remember trying to work as between the law firm, the tax advisor, the local counsel and everyone staying on the same page was really hard too. And then once you do get on the same page, trying to make sure that the same information gets reflected correctly everywhere across hundreds of documents and thousands of pages is, is a real struggle. It's quite prone to error. Those are the kind of challenges I've seen. We talk about, obviously, you must have you know hundreds of horror stories. Are there any horror stories that's out there? Not to scare our listeners, but just to say what it's like, you know, because we're all at the coalface as lawyers, especially as junior lawyers, you know, you really do cop the brunt of the frustrations of the clients, but, you know, you're in the background doing a lot of work. As we, well, I like to say, it's like an iceberg. There's a lot of work underneath that you don't see under the surface and, and the client only sees the tip of the iceberg. You know, so what are some of the, the horror stories that you can share with us? I don't know if there's one in particular to point to, but I think where, where things get tough is that just things need to move fast. You know, what I saw in my own few years in private equity was that deal timelines were always getting compressed. Everyone wanted to move faster all the time. It, it was quite competitive and people were looking to eke out value in new ways. And at the same time, they wanted to be really conscious of legal spend because you don't want to spend on a broken deal before you're sure that it's going to go ahead. Mm. So I think a lot of the horror story was that as things went on, these, the patterns that kept like, what would be really typical would be the sponsor we were working for would try to gain an advantage by trying to get exclusivity and close a lot faster than anyone else could, or just promising, like, if we get this, we'll close like literally in 24, 48 hours, oh, something like that, or, or whatever the timeline is. At the same time, they don't want to spend on kind of the work or spend as little as possible on the work until they've got that agreement to go ahead. So you can see what that means. That means mm. like kind of at, at the last second, everyone's really jammed up. It's like, okay, don't, don't work on this. Don't work on this. Okay, go. And let's, let's just finish it as quickly as possible. You know, due to kind of things getting more competitive industries like private equity, really maturing, people are trying to eke out value in new ways. And that means you're not just taking the last deal off the shelf. At least we were and every new transaction we were working with, it had new and bespoke elements. So, so there was a lot to be done, a lot to be done for the first time or new and, and a huge kind of time pressure. You know, that leads to people, you know, up all night, sleeping under desks where they can between calls and, and that kind of thing. 
I actually feel like I'm busier now running a company that I was as a lawyer, but I think, you know, with COVID and everything and remote work, I can only imagine it's a lot more difficult now when you don't even have the separation of being able to go home at the yeah. end of uh, one of those deals. There are a lot of people who are, are burning out. A lot of talented junior folks are, are actually quitting because I think it's really hard to handle both the, the normal pressures plus the COVID pressure on top. Despite the, the burnout and the hard work and the late nights, there was obviously some job security and a nice you know, monthly paycheck that you would take home. So what prompted you to, to jump off the cliff into the world of entrepreneurship and starting up your own business? It's something that I wanted to do for a while. Coming from the US, there's, there's sort of like a meme that when you go to law school and you take on a lot of debt, then you go into big law for two years and, and try to save up and pay it off. And then you quit your big law job to go do something else, um, whether that's to try to get some work-life balance as an in-house lawyer, or it's to potentially even leave law altogether and go do something or another. I think for me, that was, that was kind of always in my mind. I didn't see myself at, at any point really becoming a partner at a law firm. It was more a way to get some really good, you know, commercial experience, professional experience, pay off my massive student loans of which, uh, you know, I like every other American had a good amount and then go do something else. I don't think I always knew it was going to be entrepreneurship or tech. For a while, I was really interested in finance and I even did two levels of the CFA exam, which is an exam that usually asset managers like hedge mm -hmm. fund folks uh, yeah. take. Just so happened, I got really back into tech around 2017 with the whole kind of crypto smart contracts boom, which I thought was really interesting, right? Like smart contracts, lawyer, that kind of set me off a whole, a whole direction <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, about are these going to replace the law and lawyers and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Office and Dragons actually has nothing to do with blockchain, but <laughs> it just kind of spun out from that. Tell us more, more about Office and Dragons, how it all began and, and where you are now and some of the challenges you have faced on your journey. So at Office and Dragons, uh, we're pioneering a new category of legal tech transaction development, which helps lawyers and their clients develop deals efficiently by automating the creation and editing of bespoke complex contracts for those deals. To give a, a bit of a flavor of, of what that looks like in practice, you can think of Office and Dragons sort of like a table or a term sheet that serves as a command center for your deal. You take the key terms for that deal and you put them in that table rather than just hard coding them into dozens of different docs. When something needs to change, you go and update that table. And when you do that, all those documents are automatically populated or updated with that information based on the table. That could be things like names, dates, it could be entire clauses. What that means for folks who use it is whereas before, if they wanted to find a term in their transaction, they'd be you know, searching through emails, searching through docs. It's, it's confusing, it's slow. Now they've got it all in one table that can evolve alongside the transaction. And when a change needs to be made or a document needs to be spun out you know, with Office and Dragons, you put that information, you make that change in that table and your docs are automatically updated or, or spun out. 
that sounds like a dream for any lawyer, to be honest. <laughs> As a business, where are you now and what are your plans? We are at the stage where we've got some initial customers who are using it. We started doing our first proofs of concept type studies with, uh, with law firms in 2020. And already some of those have converted to annual contracts. Uh, we've also got some pretty big pilots with, with some very large firms uh, still underway, which are going really well. And we're, uh, we're quite excited about the direction of travel there, seeing growth in our existing customers and the number of users they're bringing onto the platform and, and things like that. So that's really exciting. We've been growing out the team at the end of 2020. We won an Innovate UK grant to fuel the development of the next stage of our platform which has allowed us to grow our engineering team and uh, accelerate the pace of development there. So that's really exciting. And in coming months, we'll, uh, we'll be going public with, with what that is. And then fundraising is on the horizon as well, likely looking to kick off at the start of next quarter. You know, we've been, we've been doing really well. And although we are really early, we're less than two years into the journey, we're seeing that traction, we're seeing indicators that uh, this really is solving a real problem for people and, and making sense for businesses. I guess it's not just law firms that you're, you're targeting. You, are there any other customers that you're looking at that, that you can see there's an opportunity there? Right now, we are really focused on working with law firms in the first mm -hmm. instance, and that's, that's who our customers are right now. As, as exactly you point out, mm -hmm. beyond law firms and even beyond lawyers, there's a lot of different stakeholders in a transaction. There's, you know, the principals, the deal teams themselves, but then there's the accountants and the consultants and the bankers, everyone else. As our platform evolves, we're really going to empower and enhance collaboration across all those stakeholders so that they can come onto the platform and quickly align and agree on the key terms of that deal without the uh, hours of back and forth and alignment calls that we that we typically have to go through today to get on the same page and then use the platform to put that information into the legal contracts it needs to go into to close the deals but then going forward putting that into other places as well putting it into the work product of the other stakeholders like the accountant steps plans and so on yeah and then making sure that all that data uh, which has been natural, like sort of as a byproduct of working the Office and Dragons way, you've structured a lot of that key legal data, making sure that that finds its way into contract lifecycle management systems, governance dashboards of investors, and all the other places that today people would be reading documents, reading memos, and manually entering. Mm. We can just flow that through where it needs to be. Do you have any? Final tips that you would give to other lawyers who might want to jump into the entrepreneur world or to some of, well, lots of our listeners who already are entrepreneurs and are probably facing similar challenges in trying to grow a business. Do you have any top tips for them? Yeah, I guess for both sides, for lawyers who are exploring something else, or even if they're not, my number one tip is always try to invest in developing some non-legal skill, because I think even as you stay in a legal career, that non-legal skill is going to be your secret sauce. If you think about it, you're, you're coming in as a junior, you're coming in in an intake class with a lot of folks who probably went to a similar university, studied here the same subject likely, and, and got the same grades and probably have a similar acumen for the kind of legal reasoning and, and that kind of thing that goes into being a lawyer. 
and then there's there's those people across every other firm. So so you're not really going to stand out, I think, typically on that aspect alone. But if you've invested in some other skill, for me, that was financial kind of skills. You know, I was the person who could build financial models in Excel, and I could read the models that the clients send and understand how they need to go into the drafting or how the drafting needs to go into the model. Uh, so, so that's in the financial skill set, but that could be kind of any relevant skill mm-hmm. that you have. And I'd encourage investing in that. Uh, for entrepreneurs or people just starting out, learn your market before you go building something, before you start actually start trying to quote unquote sell it. And by mm-hmm. that, I mean, start to try to have conversations with the people that you think would buy it and, and understand from them what would they buy and how much would they pay for it? And uh, if you can get a sort of handshake with them of, okay, if I, if I come back to you in six months and I've got a product that does these things, will you in good faith look at being one of our first customers? Mm. And that's, that's really going to help you validate your idea and understand that you're, you're building in the right direction yeah. uh, and not just wasting time. That is, that is really good advice. No point building something if no one's going to buy it, basically. So, but before we leave, uh, Sam, um, we just have enough time for our rapid fire round. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll ask you a bunch of questions in 60 seconds. Please just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. So, Sam, in one word or phrase only. On your mark, get set. Where did you go to university? Harvard. What's your favorite food? Pizza. If you were having a dinner party and could invite three guests, alive, dead, or fictional, who would you invite and why? Oh, man, that's, <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, I'd invite Steve Jobs. I'd invite uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, oh, is and, he uh, fictional, alive, or dead? Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's all three. Uh, man, who else would I invite? How about Tyler Durton from Fight Club? <laughs> Your favorite sportsman or woman of all time? Don't know. Does not like come into the top of my mind. I'll, I'll okay. pass on that one <laughs> to not take too much time. Strangest place you have visited? The Democratic Republic of the Congo. Ooh, that's a good one. And finally, if you're down to your last 10 quid, what stock or crypto would you invest in? Bitcoin all the way. Great. Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time in participating in MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us with Sam Smolkin. Join us next time when Caroline and I will be joined by another special guest and we will chat and snack all things M&A. Goodbye, all. Goodbye.